Our scripture reading is going to be out of Mark 6, verses 30 through 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For, <clears throat> for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they, and they went away... They went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Thank you, Sue. You may be seated. Sue, thanks for serving us this morning. If you're just now joining us again um, in person or online, we are really glad that you're here. My name is Evan Skelton once more, and we're going to be in God's Word. And I encourage you to keep your Bibles out to Mark chapter 6. If you had trouble finding that in your Bible, that's okay. You wouldn't be the only one here who, who does. It takes us a little bit of time to get used to how the Bible works. Go to your table of contents at the very beginning. You'll find Mark is one of the four, the four Gospels, they're called, in the section called the New Testament. And Mark's Gospel will be the second one there. Chapter 6, those are the large numbers, and the verses 30 through 34 are the small. Hope you're ready to get to work. You know, um, this passage comes right before one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, the miracle of feeding 5,000 people, actually a lot more than that it would seem, which we'll get into next week, but we're going to have to save that miracle again for next week because I think today in our passage we find another incredibly important text that I wanted to spend some more time for us to kind of do a deep dive in, if you will. Verses 30 through 34, in fact, we've learned something about God's nature and character in fact, we learn something about God's compassion in a way that may surprise us and I think bring us great comfort today. But I need to ask you, as you, um, I don't know if I was to ask you to describe God, more specifically I was to ask you to summarize God's basic posture, his basic attitude. Would you describe God as compassionate or what else might you say? You see, I know many people who have an idea about God as standing rather removed from their lives. Maybe that's you. More, uh, again, the, we imagine God as being busy with many other things. Perhaps he's just standing over our lives, just waiting for a reason to punish us, just one moment for us to step out of line and to let us have it. Again, I've met many people who view God on these kind of terms. In other words, God seems like a distracted or easily angered parent to them. Regardless for many, God's compassion seems like it's meant for other people. Perhaps those whose lives are a bit more put together, one with a more impressive resume, those who haven't disappointed God maybe as much as I have, for many, experiencing the compassion of God seems more to be the exception than the rule. Still, others have no problem saying that God is compassionate. Of course God is loving. He's bound to forgive. Isn't that his job? In other words, even as God's compassion makes a great deal of sense to some of us, 
I fear we mean something quite different than the Bible does when it speaks of compassion. Like Inigo Montoya in Princess Bride, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Today we're going to look and see what the Bible has to say. If you don't get that reference, I'm re this is a discipleship issue. You need, to, you need to watch Princess Bride this afternoon. Just kidding. Don't come after me because there might be something inappropriate in it. But regardless, today we're going to consider the compassion of Jesus, both its nature and its reality. And the, the compassion that you're going to need to understand, actually, if you're going to understand the feeding of the 5,000. And so I hope you keep your Bibles open as we consider Mark 6, these four verses in three parts. The disciples rest the crowd's pursuit, and the shepherd's compassion. You ready? I'll tell you what, I am. So let's look at the first of these, the disciples' rest. Now, if you're new here, what we do uh, often uh, as kind of our steady diet uh, in terms of teaching is to read passage after passage in a book of the Bible or a passage of Scripture, go verse by verse, seeing what God's Word has to say. And last week, we looked at a rather alarming passage for some of us about the rather violent death of John the Baptist, a rather unjust death at that. It's as if John Mark, last week, who's the author of this book, wanted to temper all of the excitement that is bound up with those who are reading about Jesus and his supernatural power, including us, Especially after the passage right before that, in which we find that Jesus not only has supernatural power and authority, but then he shares it with his closest followers. It's as if John Mark wanted to point out, yes, yes, following Jesus will come with a kind of power and authority, but it will also come with cost, even ultimate cost. And so he gives us the example of John the Baptist. Still now, John Mark picks up where he left off in verse 30 as Jesus' followers are returning back to him after who knows how long with a lot to share with their teacher. After all, last we heard from these 12 disciples of Jesus is that Jesus had sent them as his representatives, his emissaries, which is rather remarkable when you come to see how little or how, how, I guess, how much the disciples had to learn about Jesus still. He sent them with the news of his coming kingdom, and then he sends them with the power to prove it, to back up those claims, including the authority to cast out demons, the power to heal as proof of the rescue that Jesus not only had the desire to provide, but could indeed provide. In fact, notice what it calls these disciples. It calls them apostles, which is what they become referred to later on in the New Testament, but this is the first and only time that Mark uses that term. Apostles means something like sent ones or missionaries, and now these sent ones are reporting back on where their sending has taken them, returning to Jesus with, again, a lot to share. You can probably picture it. They're coming back. I haven't seen their teacher in so long, coming from all over the countryside and meeting up and wanting to have a, conver a deep conversation, not only with one another, but with Jesus, saying, Jesus, you have no idea what's taken place over the days, the things that we've seen, how people responded. But given the fact that Jesus was now, at this point, surrounded by crowds, almost since he wakes up in the morning, pretty much at every opportunity, with all these people coming and going, they and all of them expecting something from him, there's not a lot of room for them to catch up over a cup of coffee, not even to eat, according to verse 31. And so he pulls them aside, saying basically, okay, guys, let's get out of here. In fact, go, go grab the boat. And so they push off into the Sea of Galilee, sailing for what our passage calls 
a desolate place. We'll look more at this desolate place next week, but for some much-needed rest. Not only did they have a lot to catch up on afterwards, but you have to imagine they're bound to be exhausted, especially Jesus. We're creatures, after all, and you can only push the body and mind so far before it quits. Even Jesus is fully God and fully man, and even needed to sleep, needed to rest himself. Something an overworked culture like ours needs to hear, I think, is we need rest. But I have to tell you, I think there's something going on here that's even more important than the disciples were getting a well-deserved getaway. This passage isn't about how to have a good vacation. This little getaway reveals something actually about Jesus himself, something that we've seen before in John Mark's gospel. You see, when it comes to rest and the idea of it in the Bible— it turns out to be a bit more complex than we might realize. Yes, of course, the disciples needed a break. But it's hard not to connect these words with Jesus' words in Matthew 11, verse 28. Can we put that on the, on the screen? Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In fact, in verse 30, Uh, In this passage, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus goes on to call this rest for your souls. I don't know about you, but do you long for a little bit of that kind of rest? Not just physical rest, but deep soul rest. It turns out this deep soul rest is what we need most, and it's what the disciples are beginning to experience with Jesus even now. You can't find this rest, however, through vacations or food or vegging out on a Saturday afternoon. After all, does anyone feel more tired after you do these things? It doesn't mean you don't need to take a nap or perhaps break away from work. In fact, to experience soul rest, you probably should. But still, soul rest isn't found primarily in me time. It is found instead in experiencing a vibrant, intimate friendship with Jesus himself. The kind of relationship that is cultivated through time, intentionality, and honesty. The fruit of long long, uh, hours spent in honestly relating to him about the real highs and lows of life. It is the kind of relationship in which the chief goal is not simply to get something from God, but to enjoy God himself. Jesus invites the disciples away for this kind of rest, to spend unhindered time with him. But let me ask you, is this the kind of relationship that you have with God himself? On a regular basis? Is your prayer life like meeting with a best friend, a kind of friend who knows the real you, a kind of friend with whom it is natural to process the joys and heartaches of life, the kind of friend who you grieve to hurt, but you never have to fear that they will cast you away? Or is your relationship with Jesus more like calling a distant relative or maybe meeting with a parole officer? Is it simply transactional, and reactionary? Do you come to God simply to enjoy God or to get something from him, particularly when things are going wrong? The thing is, this kind of friendship, like any friendship, is 
isn't microwaved, it's cultivated. It's the product of years of daily conversations in a variety of different circumstances, breaking away from the normal noise of your life in order simply to be with God. But it is also a friendship, importantly, notice here, that Jesus initiates. Jesus longs for this relationship with his people more than we do, thank God, and that Jesus invites us into this same kind of friendship to cultivate a, the kind of relationship in which we find soul rest because there we find him. It reminds me of the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Many of you know the words to this hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Rest with him. That is why Jesus calls the apostles to break away, but they aren't the only one in, uh, ones in need of this kind of rest, it turns out, which brings us to the second point, the crowd's pursuit. Now, I have to tell you, in reading these next verses, it just makes me irritated. <laughs> I don't know about you. Look, listen to verse 33. Now, many saw them going. So they had left, they need rest, they're getting a getaway. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I mean, can't a guy catch a break? You have to wonder if the disciples tugged on his robe once they see the crowds on shore and saying, oh, come on, Jesus, can't we uh, just, let's just sail a little bit further. I mean, let's get to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, if, if, we, if, we, if we could. But notice how Jesus actually responds to them in verse 34. Jesus tells them, it just says that he had compassion on them. We'll look at this a little bit more later on, but it says because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus understands why they have come out to him in the wilderness. They don't have a shepherd, and they need one. To understand this, we need to understand a little bit more about what the Bible means by shepherd what this biblical metaphor is. After all, it shows up actually absolutely everywhere. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the word shepherd. After all, anybody here work as a shepherd right now? Not a lot of sheep herds in St. Louis, I don't think. If you do, I really want to find out. I mean, I, I want to talk to you. I want to hear about your experience. But in ancient Israel, shepherding was a very common job to have. It seems to be actually the very first job that God's people had when they lived together in Egypt. And it was the job of Israel's most beloved king, David, who may have penned many of the Psalms while watching his own sheep. It's no wonder that shepherding has become bound up with how God's people speak then about God himself. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. The Lord doesn't, I mean, sorry, the Bible doesn't just simply describe God as a fortress, a warrior, a lion, a king, or a consuming fire, although it will say all of those things about God. You know, God identifies himself at multiple points in the Bible with the gentle, intentional, proactive, protective, and providing care of a shepherd. The metaphor of a shepherd, then, was also bound up with Israel's leaders, though. You want to look at what they, their leaders were to be, how they were to lead. It wasn't primarily as CEOs, even as kings. Their leaders 
the metaphor associated with them was shepherds, the nourishing, knowing, guarding care of a shepherd. Guarding God's people as God himself would. Shepherding as the chief shepherd shepherds his people. The issue is, though, that throughout their history, their leaders often didn't. In fact, I think one of the passages that John Mark has in mind when he says they were sheep without a shepherd is Ezekiel chapter 34, where God, in defense of his own people, delivers one of the strongest rebukes in the entire scripture that we have to leaders who were entrusted with his people's care. Notice what he says to them. I'm going to put these on the screen. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, go to the next one, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Now, notice how it says shepherds here. It's not saying he's just speaking to the sheep herders of Israel. He's speaking to the leaders, but he's addressing them as shepherds. Shepherds who are entrusted to represent the chief in what they do. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. It's rather disturbing at this point, isn't it? Shepherds who are not only not feeding the sheep, but did you pick up on this? That they are feeding themselves on the sheep. It goes on, verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And verse 5 goes even further. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Because there was no shepherd. These shepherds had left them without one. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. What this is getting at, I think, is something that many of us have observed firsthand. How prone those with power are to use it for their own benefit rather than the ones that they serve. And that goes for both sides of the political spectrum. As Lord Acton once said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. After all, there's something intoxicating about having power, whether it is wealth or respect or position of influence. So much so that those with even the most noble intentions so often end up using that power to protect themselves, to promote their own passions, to skim a little bit off of the top, to feed themselves instead or sometimes on the sheep. It makes me think of Uh, The conversations my friend Drew and I, who is in the Air Force, an officer in the Air Force, about the military and how many safeguards the military has put in place to prevent this very thing from happening, assuming that it actually, that, that those entrusted with power and authority would be prone to misuse it. Or makes me think of the system of checks and balances, which was uniquely written into our own constitution, as if assuming that the most well meaning authority would still need to be kept in check. Now, unlike what much of our current culture might assume, authority and power are not the basic problem any more than they are the solution. But still, notice how honest 
the Bible is about the practical effects of corrupt leadership and how seriously God himself takes it. Many of us, after all, know what it is, what it is like not to have our authorities listen to us, not to have our bosses stick up for us, not to have our parents give us the help we need, or our politicians act out of something other than their own self-interest. Sometimes, in fact, those who use their power, use their power in inexcusable ways, even violent ways. Many of us know what this is like, as Ezekiel, as Ezekiel puts it, to experience rule with force and harshness, to be left as food for all the wild beasts, to be in reality sheep without a shepherd. But it's not as if we didn't need shepherds. It's not as if Having a shepherd was the problem, as if simply we needed to throw off authority, in other words, and be left to ourselves to find our own way, as attractive as this might sound to some of us. William Barclay points out that sheep without a shepherd lack three things. First, sheep without a shepherd lack direction. Left to themselves, you see, sheep wander and easily get lost. Um, sheep are rather stupid when it comes down to it, actually. And left to our own way, it turns out, our own agendas, our own worries, and our changing passions, we get lost, too. I know we are told to follow our hearts, to live our own truth, but if you're honest, are you really so certain which parts of yourselves, which desires you should be following? We're not even united in our own persons, our minds and imaginations, we are hardly monocolor, color, straightforward creatures. We are hardly unshakably convinced of what we actually want and what we see is best. It reminds me of the movie Pirates of the Caribbean and a magical object that many of us wish, I think, we had, whether or not you've seen this movie. It's a compass that pointed, to the, pointed the way to whatever the holder desired most. However, in the movie, in the main character's hand, this compass keeps changing directions. Why? Because the compass is as uncertain as this main character is about what he actually wants. Our minds and hearts are complex enough that following our hearts is hardly a straightforward thing. And many of our desires, add to this, we know aren't good at all. I mean, should I follow my heart to the cookie jar 20 times a day? or to a pornographic website, or to lash out at my spouse. Some of our desires aren't good for us at all. Some of you today lack direction, and it has left you feeling disoriented. You're not sure which way you should turn, and you've seen what happens when you are in charge of your own life. We need a shepherd to help us find the way. Second, a sheep without shepherd lack nourishment. Left to themselves, again, sheep cannot find pasture. They can't find clean water. They can't find good grass. And even if they should happen to stumble upon it, only a matter of time goes on before the flock has devoured it, before it's all used up and they are left back where they started. In fact, sheep, I don't know if you know this, are so helpless that when they stumble and fall over, they can't right themselves. They can't get themselves back up that uh, they can't get themselves on the right side again. And so sheep can die 
on their backs with their little legs flailing in the air. It's, it's, it would be a really hilarious image if it wasn't so tragic. Sheep can't take care of their own needs, and neither can we. I know there's tremendous pressure on us to be self-sufficient. In fact, one of the signs of adulthood is being able to venture out on your own. Uh, My parents, who are here today, would not be very happy if I was still hanging out in their basement playing video games. And hopefully nobody's nudging their child right now. But in reality, I can't just magically conjure up what I need physically, let alone spiritually. I'm not a tree who simply stands outside in the sun and can make my own food. I need someone outside of myself to provide it. We're all dependent creatures. And my guess is some of you here are feeling more than a bit undernourished. I don't mean physically as much as I mean spiritually, whether because of loss or loneliness or failure Many of us are feeling dehydrated in our very souls. We need a shepherd who can make us lie down in green pastures, who can lead us beside still waters, a shepherd who can restore our souls. Number three, sheep without shepherd lack protection. The thing about the ancient Near East where these sheep would have been raised, is that everything, absolutely everything, was out to get a sheep. Everything either wanted to kill or steal a sheep. And they didn't exactly have sharp claws or speedy legs to defend them and get out of danger. They are basically walking cotton balls with about the same intelligence. And the reason a shepherd, then, would be so eager to find a lost sheep is because it's only a matter of time before that sheep meets with a very sticky end. In fact, uh, in many ways, we are as vulnerable as a sheep is, spiritually speaking, just as defenseless left to ourselves. I think, I know some of us, want to think of everyone as good in heart, right? As basically good. But would you announce your credit card number at the local Starbucks? Would you uh, go into the grocery store and leave a sign on your car saying, yep, it's unlocked? Would you drop your children off with just any neighbor you can find? Only a foolish person would, right? Many of us know from experience there are some who intend and commit evil against others. We also know that we can sometimes be our own worst enemies too, right? But Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5, it's even worse. Chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, we are surrounded by predators, if you will, some of whom we can't even see. We need a shepherd who is absolutely vigilant, absolutely aware, and won't run in the face of our wolves. Jesus knows that just like the crowds, we like sheep need a shepherd. And the reason we are drawn out into the wild, uh, he, sorry, the crowds are drawn out into the wilderness, even on Jesus' day off, is because they see in him something of the shepherd that they need. Which leads us then to our third point, the shepherd's compassion. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems the nights when I am most exhausted, most in need of a good night's sleep, that 13 children seem to wake me up in the middle of the night. 
Don't ask me where those 13 children came from, but it's as if they all coordinated the night before. Okay, you wet your bed, um, you have a bad dream, and you come in naked for absolutely no reason. Jesus and his disciples here are in absolute need of rest, desperate for it, and yet the crowds have crowded out any getaway that they could have hoped for. If I was Jesus, then I I would not exactly be a happy camper. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. I, I thought you would realize when I left it was because I needed a little me time, and yet what do I find here? You are again needing something. Can't you just leave me alone? Some of you moms said this to your kids this morning. But notice again how Jesus responded to them. Verse 34 tells us he had compassion on them. Now, I fear some of us have the wrong idea, actually, about what compassion is. I know many religious people, when they think of compassion, they get in their mind something like pity. Now, this might be a little confusing because, after all, the Bible often translates this word as pity. But I think when you and I use that word, we use it a little differently. We don't mean what the Bible means when it says pity or compassion. We think of something like feeling sorry for someone. And who wants someone feeling sorry for them? Especially because this attitude often comes with a sense of self-righteousness, like the Pharisee who prayed out loud in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. God... I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Pity often involves emotional and physical distance, the kind of, that really stinks to be them, but don't get too close. Some of you know what it's like to have people say they are here to help, but in reality do very little to show it. But still others of us, we see compassion as something like goodwill as wanting good things for all people because, after all, don't we deserve them in the end? It's the kind of idea that loves the idea of love, including things like mercy and justice, but its notion of love ends up being rather shallow, ignoring the real complexities and messiness of caring for broken people, especially broken people like us, who don't often value your concern or may even take advantage of it. It's one of the reasons I think we see such burnout in career fields like social work and education. After all, have you seen someone with high ideals all of a sudden meet with harsh realities, then become deeply discouraged, even jaded, wondering if it even matters anyways? Some of you have been there, I'm sure. This kind of attitude loves the idea of loving people, but it ends up being as forgettable as the last Hallmark movie that you saw. Friends, I, I think the reason we struggle to understand not just compassion, but God's compassion, let alone show it, is because we imagine God is like us. However, in the Bible, compassion is something much better. The word that is used for compassion in its original language in the Greek is something like a gut feeling. Compassion isn't cold and distant, and it certainly isn't fake. Rather, the word is deeply emotional, an emotion that wells up from the innermost parts of a person person that comes from their very guts. It reminds me of God's words to Hosea in chapter 11 in the Old Testament, just as he was describing all of the hurt his people had caused him and their ongoing rejection and what it felt like worse than a betrayed husband or a rejected parent. 
But then God, unexpectedly, in verse 8, interrupts himself just as he's about to speak of all the justice that they deserve and says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How could I make you like Admah? How could I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Friends, is this how you see God? Do you see God as being warm and tender toward you? Again, I think the reason we struggle with this is because we imagine God's compassion is like, well, we imagine that God is like us. We imagine that if God felt compassion toward us, it must either mean that he pities us, that he feels sorry for us, but when push comes to shove, remains distant, leaving us to figure it out on our own, to clean up our own mess. Or we imagine compassion isn't really an accurate picture of, based on, isn't it, his compassion isn't really based on an accurate picture of who we are. I mean, how could it be? He may love an idea of us, but not the real us. After all, if he knew the real us, he would either run, like many others have, or that love would come with an expiration date, just waiting to be proven wrong. But as Jesus reveals, God's compassion is neither response. You know, Jesus knows actually the crowds that have come to him have largely come still for the wrong reasons. They have come for the miracles, the signs of power, not him. And he knows these crowds will actually be the same who turn on him, who later reject him and send him to his death. Jesus isn't ignorant about who he feels compassion toward, and his compassion isn't scared off by what he finds. Rather, in the face of need, his compassion grows only stronger. And Jesus doesn't remain distant. He is no more able to give a stiff arm to those he loves than a parent is to their child. He moves toward them. He shows up for them. He goes, notice this, ashore. And as we will see next week, he provides. Dane Ortland puts this in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I would recommend everyone here read. He, speaking of Jesus, doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. If this feels too sentimental for you, the verses we've looked at seem very similar, don't they? As Dane points out, Jesus' compassion doesn't dismiss our sin. In fact, it, it makes it really genuine because he knows it already. He knows it more deeply than we do, but he is eager to give forgiveness to those who need it, compassion to those who will come to him for it. As Dane puts it, his merciful affections, I love this, stream from his innermost heart as rays do from the sun. I know some of us see as God's basic posture towards us and others as anger or indifference, but there is a reason that God describes himself throughout the Bible as in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, 
if you want to go back, we'll get to that Dane Ortland quote in a second. I'm sorry to confuse you. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, notice this verse. What is God slow to? And what is he abounding in? Now we can go to that quote by Dane. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Is this how you see your God, friends? You want to know somebody who's experienced that, who's experienced that kind of compassion and it's changed them? Watch how they treat others. In fact, I need to ask you, You may think you get this in principle. You may think you understand God's compassion. It may not seem to surprise you. But then let me ask you, is this what people receive from you? Would others describe you as interruptible like Jesus? Understanding and gentle. Do they experience real, enduring, gut-level compassion from you? Or do they experience someone who is cold and mistrusting? Are you harsh, reactionary? Are you easily exasperated? Are you slow to anger and quick to love? Or are you the reverse? Is your most natural posture, in other words, a pointed finger or open arms? Maybe you feel as convicted by that as I do. All of us, after all, have people who are a little difficult to show this kind of compassion towards, right? Maybe it's just me, but friends, we are surrounded by people who need more than distant pity or empty goodwill. That includes the people who have hurt us and those who do not share your convictions. We are surrounded by people who are like us, sinners and sufferers, some combination of the two. Hurt people who hurt people, sheep in need of a shepherd. And if you're like me, again, you struggle to feel and act from the same kind of compassion, especially when others don't value what I have to offer or are just as prone to selfishness as I am. Perhaps we need to more fully consider our shepherd then. A good shepherd whose tender compassion, his heart, that Warm and tender, compassionate heart is bound up with his basic nature. Perhaps we need to think not only upon the shepherd, but what the shepherd has done for his sheep. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 10. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The thief has come to, oh, I'm sorry, this is the wrong verse. Okay, I take it back, but this is really good. comes from the same passage. Listen to this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In other words, the shepherd we need, the shepherd who not only knows us, but feeds us, leads us, and protects us, has done so, and he's done so by becoming a sheep. A sheep who would go on to be slain, who would be slain willingly, innocently, unjustly, by the very ones who he calls sheep here. 
Notice this. He has compassion on these sheep, even approaches them so, so tenderly, so and he takes the initiative so purposefully on behalf of these sheep, demonstrates such compassion, knowing later it would be these same sheep who cry out, crucify him, crucify him. This sheep would do so, this shepherd who becomes a sheep would do so, though, that these sheep might have a shepherd forever, that he might redeem them and remake them into the kind of people who surrender to that shepherd, who find life in his name as fellow broken beggars pointing other ways to the bread, sheep pointing the way to the shepherd, that they might worship him forever. They might find the one who will never mislead them or forsake them who will direct them, who will nourish them, and who will protect them even from themselves. Think upon what this shepherd has done for you. Friends, we need a shepherd, a shepherd who is compassionate, a shepherd whose attitude is paired with action, a shepherd who will go to infinite lengths to make us his own. We need a shepherd who not only leads us to rest, but offers it to sheep like us forever. Only Jesus will do. Only Jesus could produce that same compassion then in us. We're not the only ones who need a shepherd after all. We're surrounded by others. You know what they need? They need a church that sees itself as sheep who have been well-loved, who know where a shepherd is found, who are not easily impressed by the shepherds we're offered in our surrounding culture and who've so experienced compassion as to demonstrate the same. What hope could we have for these things other than the gospel itself? I hope you'll join with me in prayer. God, you call yourself the good shepherd. Even in Ezekiel 34, you say another shepherd is coming that you will send that you will care for your people, you will make sure that they're redeemed from the false shepherds who only ate and abused them. That you will redeem them by not removing shepherds, but sending one shepherd. A shepherd after David's own heart, who does even better than David himself. A shepherd who will lead, nourish, protect, and direct us. Thank you for... for the privilege of standing now in a time in history where we've seen those promises come true in Jesus Christ, the one who calls himself the good shepherd of the sheep, who calls us into his fold, who promises that those the Father entrusts to him, he will never cast away. Would we know what it's like to experience his compassionate heart? Thank you that it was for us even before we were fully awake to it. Thank you that your love isn't simply want good things, it accomplishes them for us. That you not only do good things, but you do so out of deepest love and compassion. You do so with perfect awareness of who we are and what we've done. And I pray for those who have trouble believing these things. That we, you might soften us with the truth of your word. That we would see the proof in the gospel itself. We'd become so satisfied in him to be kind, become the kind of self-forgetful people that others need, those who are quick to compassion, who are quick to steadfast love and slow to anger. Lord, we are in a culture that's exhibiting the opposite right now. Change us so that we would stand out as a light on the hill and that 
we might point the way to a shepherd who will satisfy. It's for his sake that we pray. Amen.